0: Peace be with you. My name is Drew. I'm one of the pastors here at Sojourn Heights. It is, I say this often, but it is a joy to gather with you all tonight. Um, You know, friends, family, some distinguished guests over here. Uh, We have a a difficult yet beautiful passage to discuss tonight. Um, Our task will be to keep things as simple and clear as possible without losing the grandeur of the truth within it. Um, So let's get started. Is anyone hot? Yeah, I am too. We would turn these fans on, but then it would come through my microphone and the podcast would be messed up. So, sorry. In 1973, a team of researchers set out to study the effect of perceived earning on generosity. Using just one variable, they wanted to see how generous children would be with a bowl of candy. So one by one, the children were taken into a room and made to play a rigged game for which every child was a winner. Group one was told that if they won the game, they would earn themselves a bowl of candy. And group two was told nothing about the bowl of candy, but in the end, both groups got The bowl of candy. You tracking with me? Group one considered their candy earned, and group two considered their candy a gift. Then the researchers brought in a second child, and they monitored the degree to which the children were willing to share. You can probably guess the results. Children who considered their candy earned ate significantly more, and children who considered their candy a gift shared significantly more and here's the point for us tonight when we're convinced that what we have was a gift we are more likely to act in opposition to our own self-interest we're more likely to give to share to serve and to sacrifice when we when we abandon this notion of entitlement or in other words when when we accept grace and we'll talk more about this idea when we get to point number three Um, But for now, let's take a look at the passage. We have three points tonight. Point number one is death by disobedience. Point number two is salvation by works. Yes, you heard that right. And point number three is obedience by faith. So death by disobedience, salvation by works, and obedience by faith. And point number one, death by disobedience. These six verses, Hebrews 5, 5 through 10, are completely about Jesus. But there are several things we need to clarify and define in order to understand this passage in its context. In fact, many scholars think that Hebrews was originally delivered as a sermon itself, and so it's really difficult, and and I would say even dangerous, to pluck out six verses without understanding the argument in its entirety. So stated simply, the message of Hebrews is this. Jesus is superior. He's superior to the angels, chapters one and two, He's superior to Moses and Joshua, chapters three and four. He is superior to the Old Testament priesthood, chapters five through seven. That's where we are tonight. He's superior to the law in chapters eight through 10, and he is the key to a superior way of living, chapters 11 through 13. Very, the very first thing we need to establish, though, the very first thing we need to establish is this. That we would not need a Savior if we had no need of saving. It's an obvious statement, but we need, we need to say that tonight. We call Jesus our Savior precisely because we needed salvation. We needed salvation because we had left the very source of life. It's not just that God is perfect, so he can't hang out with us, right? It's that, it's that we have left the source of life and chosen a path that leads to death. So verses 5 and 6 raise a couple of questions for us right off the bat. Verse 5 says this, should be on the screens. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And so I think the first question that jumps out to us is just what is a a high priest? Well, the high priest was Israel's supreme religious leader. The office was hereditary and it traced from Israel's first priest. His name was Aaron and he was the brother of Moses. So every high priest under the law had to be a descendant of Aaron. Their priesthood depended upon who their father was. But what about Jesus? Where did did his priesthood find its root? The answer is right there in verse 5. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. So Jesus' priesthood was still rooted in who his father was. Only his father was God himself. There are several other beautiful parallels between Jesus and the Old Testament priests, but two in particular are are especially relevant for us tonight. First, according to Leviticus 4, before the high priest could sacrifice a sin offering for the people, he had to sacrifice a sin offering for himself. Before he could stand before God, representing the nation of Israel, he had to cleanse himself. And second, according to Leviticus 16, it was the high priest's ultimate duty to perform the sacrificial ceremony on the Day of Atonement. Only he was allowed to enter into the most holy place. That's where, that's where God's presence was. Only he was allowed to, to enter into the most holy place on behalf of the people. So, if you would, keep those two things in mind as we move forward. Um, verse 6 you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek and the question number 2 who was Melchizedek Melchizedek gets a total of 4 verses in the Old Testament that is it we first meet him in Genesis and then Psalm 110 mentions him almost in passing and it's really not until the book of Hebrews that we truly get to see his significance Let's take a look at Genesis 14. Abraham was still Abram at this point. Um, And as he's returning from a military conquest, Melchizedek comes out to bless him. And in response, Abraham gives him a tenth of everything that he had. This passage refers to Melchizedek as king of Salem and priest of God most high. And that's all we're given. But, as is often true with our Heavenly Father, there's real power in what we're not given. As is often true with our Heavenly Father, there is real power in what we're not given. There's real power in what we're not told. We know that verse verse 6 calls Jesus a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. But what, what could that mean? What does that mean? The name Melchizedek means king of righteousness. The text later says that he was the king of Salem, which means peace. And some scholars think Salem later became Jerusalem, Jerusalem, which would make Melchizedek the king of Jerusalem as well. So he was king of righteousness, king of peace, king of Jerusalem. In addition, Melchizedek was a priest of God before God's priesthood had even been established. He was a priest apart from the law that God gave to Moses, which means he was a priest not subject to the failings and limitations of Aaron. And symbolically, his priesthood points to a priesthood with no beginning and no ending, and that's the author's point in in chapter 7. That's not all. Melchizedek, offered bread and wine to Abraham, just as Jesus offers bread and wine to Abraham's children. In a few minutes, we will will partake of that very same blessing. Just as Melchizedek blessed Abraham, Jesus has made us the possessors of heaven and earth, the blessed of God most high, and he has delivered us from our enemies. (laughs) In light of such a glorious deliverance, such a glorious exaltation, what really is 10%? I'm not just saying that because I manage the finances. Um, so we, we've defined high priest and we've met Melchizedek, but we haven't gotten to the, to the real meaning of Hebrews 5, 5 through 10. As I've already stated, a plain reading of these verses reveals that they're completely about Jesus. So on the surface, we don't get much in terms of practical application. That does not mean, however, that there's nothing, this passage has nothing to say about you or about me or to you or to me. Although not explicitly stated, the silent backdrop of this passage, this passage speaks volumes regarding God's character and our nature. And in particular, I think it says two things. First, that God cares about our obedience. And second, that we are bad at obedience. God's concern for your obedience and my obedience, it was the very reason Jesus was begotten, it's why he came. This passage has as its very foundation the reality that God is holy. He has an uncompromising and eternal concern for what is true and right and righteous. And by nature of his infinite perfection, he can only accept perfection. And so he says, I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves therefore and be holy for I am holy. But here's the problem. We are bad at obedience. You were created by a God who can only accept perfection. But despite what Megan Trainer may tell you, every inch of you is not perfect from the bottom to the top. Some of you didn't get it. Fine. I was preparing for many fewer laughs than, than that, so <laughs> it was good. Um, we are, if you look at chapter 5, verse 2. We are the wayward people mentioned in verse 2. See, Adam and Eve, the world's first humans, were safe and secure, enjoying life together with God in a state of perfection. But they flirted with sin. They were ungrateful and selfish. And the lure of disobedience was too much for them to resist. And after they fell, It wasn't long until the world was flooded with chaos and death. And our world is flooded with chaos and death. But for the church, for the church, Jesus is our ark. And we are safe and secure again, enjoying life together with God again, even as the storms rage outside. But amazingly, We still flirt with sin, don't we? We're still ungrateful and selfish, and the lure of disobedience is like a constant siren song. We're safe and secure deep within the ark. We are in Christ, and yet we venture to the edge. We have to get a glimpse of the storm that's raging outside because surely we are missing something, right? And that's exactly what's at stake here within the church. That's why you should want to covenant with a church that takes sin seriously. We are responsible to pull our brothers and sisters back into the ark. And we cannot tolerate unrepentant sin because it's a matter of life and death. I would hope you'd love me more than to let me venture to the edge and to flirt with the storm that's raging outside. As chapter 4, verse 11 says, we must strive. And and the word there means to be eager or zealous. So we, we must be eager to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. And so the book of Hebrews insists that Jesus is superior, Jesus is superior, Jesus is superior. So rather than leaving such a great salvation, hold on by faith to the true rest found in him and encourage others in their persevering faith as well. That brings us to point number two, salvation by works. How confident would you be in your ability to earn eternal life if it was waiting for you at the end of a lifelong tightrope walk? Imagine it. How confident would you be in your ability to earn eternal life if it was waiting for you at the end of a lifelong tightrope walk? Imagine that from birth to death you were literally on the wire and a single misstep would mean eternal death. Would you enjoy your day-to-day life? Would you even bother caring about other people? Imagine the fear and paranoia and utter joylessness of living in that reality. And now consider this. With your eternal life and my eternal life hanging in the balance, Jesus walked that tightrope A single misstep would have meant utter hopelessness for all of humanity. And yet Jesus' life was marked by total joy and love, not by fear and paranoia. And that is amazing. How could he have done this? Let's read verses 7 through 9. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears, to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. So through Jesus' prayers and supplications, loud cries and tears, reverence, obedience, and suffering, He became our source of eternal salvation. He earned victory over death. So salvation is indeed by works, only Jesus' works. But how is it that these verses can talk about the Son of God learning obedience and being made perfect? Doesn't that seem to imply that something in him was lacking from the beginning? I don't think so. To say say that Christ learned obedience is not to say that he went from being disobedient to being obedient. It's not not to say that he went from being imperfect to being perfect. It means he went from, from being untested in his perfection to being proven perfect. His obedience and perfection were put through the crucible of suffering, which proved his purity once and for all. You see, the the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit has existed in a state of perfection from eternity past. I I really want us to get this. The triune God has existed in a state of perfection from eternity past. All Jesus knew was perfection. All he knew was the infinite joy and comfort of eternal life within the Godhead. So when he became a man, When he left that and he became a man, he subjected himself to a lifetime of suffering. Listen, this this world is only tolerable because we don't know how glorious glory is going to be. We can't fully know how miserable we are apart from God. But Jesus knew He experienced the pain and isolation of the cross, yes, but he was acquainted with suffering in a way that we cannot comprehend. He experienced teething. He knew the pangs of hunger. He probably hit his thumb with a hammer. And compared with the glory he knew from eternity past, these tiny sufferings must have been torturous. So he didn't just die for you. He didn't just die for me. He lived for us. He lived his life for us. And he obeyed perfectly. So now the perfect obeyer perfects our imperfect obedience, which earns us victory over death too. As our great high priest, he achieves our forgiveness through sacrifice. But this time, the sacrifice was perfect because the priest didn't have to sacrifice for himself. Leviticus 4, which we referenced earlier, does not apply to Jesus. Rather than a high priest who offers for himself, we have a high priest who offers himself. And this offering and this sacrifice, it was an utter act of faith. As it says in in verse seven, Jesus depended completely upon the one who was able to save him from death. So the power to resurrect himself was nowhere within his human condition. You Catch that? The power to resurrect himself was nowhere within his human condition. He drifted confidently, but powerlessly into death, trusting that his father was faithful To accept his sacrifice and raise him from the dead. And this is how our Savior became our salvation. So point number three obedience by faith. According to verse 9, to whom is Christ the source of eternal salvation? To whom is Christ the source of eternal salvation? all who obey him, right? He became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Does that rub us wrong at all? Does it it jive with our understanding of salvation salvation by grace alone, through faith alone? Doesn't this mean that those who do not obey have no source of eternal salvation? To be honest, I, I really wrestled with this. But here's the deal. To suggest that our obedience is necessary is not to suggest that our obedience saves us. To suggest that our obedience is necessary is not to suggest that our obedience saves us. Grace is free. Grace is free. Grace is free. But discipleship is costly. So verse 9 does not reintroduce the tight rope of earning our salvation. Now, for Western Christians, and especially Western Reformed Christians, there's a temptation to reduce our religion to just a set of ideas. As one writer laments, our worship is primarily about exploring, sorry, our worship is primarily about explaining and singing ideas Our schools focus on transferring ideas. Our evangelism spreads our ideas. Our apologetic tries to persuade others of ideas. Community means chatting with people who share our ideas. Our entry into heaven requires holding the right ideas in our heads. He goes on to argue that what we call a Christian worldview is sometimes just a modern form of Gnosticism, which was and is an ancient heresy that ideas and intellect are more, more important than physical bodies and people and loving action. But if you're familiar at all with the Bible, you know that is not true Christianity. God cares about our obedience. To accept God's free gift of grace is to accept a lifetime of obedience and response. And so it's, it's true that as Martin Luther said, we are, we are beggars. We are beggars. But our salvation was not a handout. We are beggars, but our salvation was not a handout. God loves us more than just to offer us a handout. He loves us enough to adopt us into his family. We go from being beggars outside the castle walls to being sons and daughters, adopted children of the king himself. The all-powerful king is also our loving father, and you are his child, and his children obey him. But what sort of, what sort of obedience are we, are we really talking about here? Let me read from 1 John 2. And by this we know that we have come to know him, We follow him in both word and deed. But there's a specific context for Jesus' obedience here in Hebrews 5. According to verse 8, Jesus learned obedience through what he suffered. So the context for his learning obedience was suffering. He learned obedience by laying his life down. And because we walk in the same way, obedience means laying our lives down. There's one important thing to remember here. Jesus's manner of living required faith and trust and relationship with the Father. See, we we could never joyfully lay our lives down without true faith in a resurrection glory that far outweighed the sting of death. We could never joyfully lay our lives down without true faith in a resurrection glory that far outweighs the sting of death. And that's why Hebrews 5, obedience, does not save us. It's because Hebrews 5, obedience is by faith. It requires saving faith to lay our lives down. And Jesus was able to suffer what he suffered because he had faith that his father would save him from death. And that's our posture as we obey too. We have faith that God will save us, that that God has saved us. And we step obediently into suffering the loss of our own self-interest, our own rights and freedoms, our own futures, and maybe even our own lives. So faith must be the foundation for our love and service and sacrifice. And no one lays a foundation without intending to build upon it, right? So I want us to ask ourselves, ask yourself, in in my daily life, how would God have me build upon this foundation of faith? Maybe you'll join a Sunday ministry team. Maybe you'll volunteer to bring the main dish at your parish gathering this week. Maybe you'll spend a day fasting for that friend who's really hurting. Maybe you'll increase what you give away. Maybe you'll get a job in Italy just to join the church there. Maybe you'll share the gospel with a coworker who you know is hungry for it. Maybe you'll get assessed to lead a parish. Maybe you'll move with Taylor to the Galleria. Maybe you'll plant a church yourself. Maybe you'll finally confess that hidden sin that's been eating away at you. Maybe you'll stay in covenant with these brothers and sisters despite Sojourn's shortcomings, and we have them. Maybe you'll mentor a student at Reagan High School. (laughs) Maybe you'll forgive someone and pursue reconciliation, even though it hurts and it hurts bad. Maybe you'll clear your Netflix queue and just spend some time in prayer. But listen, I, I, I pray you don't leave, I pray you don't leave this place feeling the weight of law. Truly, that is not my goal. <laughs> You might've had a, a tough day, a tough week, a tough year. You may feel like God is distant and that's okay because God's grace is near and it's big. Plus, you can know that your salvation is not contingent on the type of day you had today. Look at verse 10. That name Melchizedek means that your salvation is not contingent on the type of day you had today. Had it said after the order of Aaron, we'd all be hopeless. We'd still have a high priest under the law, but verse 10 says he was designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. That means his priesthood is apart from the law and everlasting. And the permanence of his priesthood gives us confidence and comfort, knowing that grace will be given to us as we persevere in faith. Because on the Day of Atonement, just like every priest before him, Jesus entered into the most holy place. Only this time he stayed there and he ministers there on our behalf day and night. Right now, in this moment, he's pleading your case before the Father. If you're a, if you're a non-Christian with us tonight, this, this passage pleads with you as well. Our world is flooded with chaos and death. Surely you have noticed. But Jesus has overcome the world. He wants to be your refuge from the storm. He offers his perfection to you. Our good and loving Father wants to adopt you too. And we have, we, you need to know, we have faith. in in a resurrection that spills itself into eternal life. So what really is 80 years of laying your life down compared to eternal glory? So salvation is by works, but salvation was Jesus's to earn. It was given to us as a gift. It was given to us as a gift. It was earned, but it was given to us as a gift. That means we can give away our bowl of candy. Because Jesus obeyed, we can lay our lives down with hope and confidence in a glorious resurrection. Let's pray.